0: This week on Geeksplained, with the second season of Harley Quinn premiering this week on the DC Universe streaming service, we're taking a look at how all of the DC Universe originals rank from worst to best. Welcome back to Explained. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is all about the DC Universe streaming service. This is a service put out by DC Comics and Warner Brothers that has, I think, been something of a marvel, as funny and no pun intended there. Um, it's just a service that I think gives a lot, and it's something that nowadays, I think, especially with all of the self-isolation, self-quarantine, social distancing and stuff, is a great resource. We're talking comics, we're talking movies, we're talking TV shows, and kind of the prize possession of the DC Universe streaming service are their DC Universe originals. These are television shows that they produce that are exclusive to that ser- to that uh, service. And today we're going to be ranking all of them. I'm going to be ranking them from worst to best, and we're going to be covering pretty much all of them. The good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. And that's what we're going to be covering. We also have our final wildcard weekly review before we pick up with our regular weekly review with the season 2 of Harley Quinn next week, and we are debuting a brand new segment in the place of Comics Countdown, which we are calling the Comics Callback. All of that and more coming to you on this episode, but before we get into all of that, let's check in with this week's news. Okay, guys and dolls, we got some news for you this week. Of course, we have our four categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous. And we are going to kick it off with some miscellaneous news. One piece of miscellaneous news I'm really excited about. uh, We talked about a couple weeks ago about Overwatch. A new character is being brought into the Overwatch family, and it is Echo. An an adaptable AI, I think, was the... uh, was the technical term used by Blizzard when they announced her. And this past week, uh, or it, I guess, technically, uh, Echo joined the PTR, and we got to see a little bit of Echo's gameplay. The style that we're using Echo, I think, to the surprise of many, including myself, is actually a DPS character. I kind of assume that... I'm, I'm gonna call her she. I'm just gonna say she, because it's... it's Anyway, um, that Echo is, I kind of assumed that she'd be a support character, just because that's kind of the vibe that I got from her in the uh, cinematics, but I was pleasantly surprised to see that we are getting another DPS character, and the kit that Echo is coming out with seems real interesting, and is going to get nerfed to hell once it comes off of the PTR. It's Basically, Echo has, like, a three-shot volley as normal fire. She has a sticky bomb that has, like, an area of effect damage. There's a penetrating laser that, I guess, does more damage the lower your health is. And then her ult, which is the most ridiculous thing, is that she duplicates the target hero. And not just that, she duplicates them, their entire abilities gets 650% ult um uh ult gathering or whatever so basically you're getting ults like off every other hit with this character um the character that you have duplicated can't change characters while this is in, in effect and Echo can't die while duplicated. Like, it's just it's ridiculous. It's super overpowered. I'm excited to play it, but I'm also not excited to play against it. And I think that is going to get nerfed to hell once it comes off of PTR and into the regular game. So that is the info for our miscellaneous. We're going to move on to uh, comics. So in comics, uh, we talked about last week about Diamond kind of shutting down, DC, Marvel, Image, Dark Horse, all of the other... Comics uh, companies are now having to figure out what's going to happen when they can't get distribution. And this is the problem that is that kind of arises from that huge monopoly that Diamond has on publishing and distribution. Uh, but it looks like right now DC is pursuing uh, this idea of a multi-distributor model. Um, and we've started to see kind of the effects as we go into this with their announcement that uh, they're going to go forward with digital releases uh of each comic of uh all the comics each week however they've pushed back all of their uh, all of their digital releases of the comics that are coming out that were supposed to come out this week all the way back to the end of the month so on uh april 1st they're gonna put they're gonna push back all of those comics to april uh 29th and then continue with the uh I guess, the normal schedule there. Not sure how this is going to work. Apparently, the (laughs) uh, higher-ups at DC see the digital and um, hard copy audiences as two separate audiences, so I'm not sure exactly how that's going to work out. Um, It does seem like there are rumblings about a separate distribution service, so... We'll have to see. Um, If you haven't listened to our Geek Explained Extra from last week about the uh, kind of the state of comics in 2020 right now, feel free to go back, check that out. It's like 15 minutes. If you've got 15 minutes, uh, I try to be as informative as possible. So that is kind of what I presented there. But yeah, so it's interesting. I will keep my ear to the ground to see what comes up with this. Uh, multi-distributor model I'm using quotations uh, to see exactly what comes of this because of course I want everyone to be as safe as possible but I'm also selfish and I also want comics so uh, we'll see Uh, there is one comic that is digital only that I'll be talking about in our our new segment Comics Callback that'll be uh, later on in the episode but we will definitely talk about that then moving on to TV news uh, Castlevania The animated series on Netflix uh, has been renewed for a fourth season, which I think we all kind of assumed it would be, but getting official confirmation is always good. Uh, We did that as part of our uh, Wildcard Weekly Review a couple weeks back, so check out that episode if you are interested in hearing my thoughts on the review for the third season. Moving on, uh, Stargirl. Stargirl is coming at the end of May, I believe, or midway through May, something like that. Um, And we got not only a first look at Dr. Midnight and all of his uh, Justice Society splendor, but also a couple posters. Posters look interesting. It does seem like... Uh, The goal of this show is going to be Stargirl kind of putting together her own younger version of the Justice Society uh, with villains like Icicle Jr., um, Sportsmaster. seems interesting. Uh, We also got a poster of just Stargirl with uh, her staff. So it looks interesting. I'm still on the fence. You know my passion and my love for Justice Society. Uh, So I'll definitely be watching this, but... We'll have to see exactly what what transpires on this show. Uh, moving on to film news, we got some big film news this week. Uh, rumor is, for our first piece, that uh, Black Widow and Mulan might be going to VOD. A lot of uh, films that have already come out have moved to this model of going to uh, video on demand early, but right now Disney is looking at the possibility of just releasing Black Widow and Mulan uh, on VOD first, just to see, I guess, try to get some of that immediate um, money back. I'm not sure exactly what uh, their plan would be. I'm interested in both, and I would buy both, but We'll just have to see. For now, it's still kind of a rumor. What's not a rumor is that Sony has officially moved Morbius and Ghostbusters all the way back into 2021. So they were both supposed to come out in the next month or so. And so Sony has made the decision to move them back. So we will be getting those movies next year. However, it seems like they are still on track for Venom 2 to come out in 2020 because the Uh, rumored release date for that is in October, which hopefully will be, um, pretty far past, you know, after things come back to normal, fingers crossed. But uh, Venom 2 could be, you know, this huge movie if, uh, if it's, like, one of the first major movies that comes out, uh, post-quarantine though it may be beaten out by dc because they have moved uh wonder woman 84 to august 14th of 2020 that's two days after my birthday so that'll be a great birthday present and i'm i'm glad i'm glad they moved it back uh I'm sad that we have to wait on it, but it is for the best, and I'm really, really excited to see the movie, especially now that it's going to be closer to my birthday. So that is going to do it for all of the news this week. Speaking of DC, we are now going to move on to the main course of the podcast, the entree, if you will, which is our rankings of all of the DC Universe originals from worst to best. It's got comedy, action... Incredibly gratuitous violence So when I first heard about the rumblings of a DC streaming service, I was skeptical because even though they had a lot of uh, a lot of content that they could easily put up there, this hadn't really been done before. Marvel doesn't have a streaming service like this, though I guess technically, With it being on uh, Disney Plus now, they sort of do. But comics really hadn't had anything like this before. And so they were kind of treading new ground and we were going to see exactly what was going to come of this. And I will admit, I didn't jump onto the DC Universe streaming service right away. I waited out the first couple months just to see what it would... What it would bring, you know, what it brought to the table. And I will say that it's probably one of the best investments I ever made. As a comics fan, the comics library there is ridiculous. Their back catalog of animated series that we all love, Superman the Animated Series, Batman the Animated Series, Teen Titans, they've got it all on there. And their movies too, even though I still don't understand their model of rotating movies in and out every month, they own all of them. I get that there are, you know, um, streaming rights and all that stuff that they need to work out, but once those run out, they should just move there. Anyway, the big selling point for this DC Universe streaming service when it was first announced was that they were going to be producing original content. And their first one right out the gate was Titans. And from there, they've steadily built up a catalog of TV shows that you can watch. And so today, we are going to be ranking all of them from worst to best. Now, I'm looking at my notes right here. And there are, to date, as of this recording, five different uh, DC Universe original series that have uh, debuted on this service. Uh, Later on, it'll be joined by Stargirl, though that will also be airing on CW as well. It's confusing. So I'm going to look at these five, rank them from worst to best, and we are going to start off at number five with... Titans. That's right. I said it. Titans is the worst DC Universe original on the service. And that hurts me. It really, really hurts me to say that because I should love this show. I should. I just, it, it makes absolutely no sense that I don't put this at number one just for the sheer fact that the lead of the show is Dick Grayson. Dick Grayson, I have made very clear on previous episodes of this podcast, is the greatest DC Universe character ever created. Period. Bar none, I'll fight you on it. We'll do this. Dick Grayson is the greatest character possibly in all of comics, but this show just isn't for me because I believe in my heart that the showrunners and the writers fundamentally don't understand Dick Grayson. Um if you would like on Twitter under my uh my my personal account, uh, it's at that daring ma- it's at that daring man. Yeah. So at that daring man, um I did a full live tweet of my uh, thoughts while watching season two of Titans. I wanted to make sure I watched all of it to prep for this episode. And man, that was rough because I, I will tell you starting off, let, let's backtrack a little bit with uh, season one. I was very um, underwhelmed. I'll say uh, I wish I could have been whelmed to give a little uh, reference to a later point of entry on this list. But I just I had high hopes for this because it was it's Team Titans. It's the top team in all of DC Comics. You can argue for, you know, Justice League, Justice Society, Outsiders, whatever, but the Team Titans are the premier team. They're the team that won the comics battle for DC for years. And it had all of the right components. They had they announced their leads as Dick, Grace, and Robin, Starfire, Beast Boy, Raven, and Hawk and Dove, which I think were odd choices, but um, I was like, I was all in. And when they started debuting, or they started uh, releasing first looks at these characters, I was like, okay, cool. The Robin suit looks great. Hawk and Dove look great. Beast Boy looks fine, I guess. Raven looks... Whatever, And then Starfire's look came out, and a lot of us were like, okay, you're taking a lot of artistic liberties with this. And when they tried to explain it through the show, I don't think they did a good job of it. The show itself called Titans really wasn't in season one really wasn't a show about the Titans it was about Dick Grayson it was really about Dick Grayson's move from being Robin to Nightwing and in the original version of this show he was supposed to become Nightwing at the end of season one however the showrunners decided halfway through production that they were not going to Uh, complete this arc and they were going to stretch it out over the course of two seasons and that I think is really the moment where it kind of fell apart it was having trouble up until that point but it really um, it really fell apart because the first season now basically is trashed especially with the fact that they retconned a bunch of stuff in season two And the show, while having bright spots, I thought Brendan Thwaites, given the right material, could be a really good Dick Grayson. I thought that Jason Todd is probably the best Jason Todd that we've seen, especially because his history as robin at least in modern day comics is pretty much just glossed over because everyone just wants to get straight to red hood everyone wants to get there and i get that but the entire reason that jason returning as red hood hit so hard was because we watched him as Robin his failed attempts to be as good as Dick Grayson and then him being brutally killed and so when the return came back that's why it mattered and so I applaud Titans for trying to get us invested in Jason Todd as Robin um I thought he was fantastic I really really did and the surprise for me in season one was how much I really dug Hawk and Dove um I think both of them work really well together. Their chemistry is great. The costumes were good. Um, I still think in my heart of hearts that Alan Richson would have made an incredible Guy Gardner. Uh, He is my top casting choice for Guy Guy Gardner if that ever does happen. Um, And it had a lot of promise. The first season had promise, but it felt like it was holding back because it... It honestly felt like it was made in the mid two thousands, where the superhero genre was starting to pick up steam, but no one was really willing to admit it. So they were like, "Okay, we're gonna have these, you know, these characters like Beast Boy and Raven, but we're we're not gonna call them that. We're not gonna put them in the suits. We're not gonna have them have powers, um, or at least the traditional version of their powers. We're gonna, you know, this is Rachel, this is Gar, and Gar is." Gar Logan is uh, Beast Boy's real name But I don't know why They had to change Raven to Rachel Raven is a perfectly acceptable name uh, I I just I really wanted to like Season 1 But I just Every time they started to draw me in They dropped the ball again And I was like ah, It wasn't as bad as I expected it to be And a lot of people said it was uh, Because this show got a lot of hate Rightfully so in some cases. But I finished off season one um, a little frustrated because the cliffhanger clearly was supposed to be the lead into the finale of the season. And they decided, nope, we're going to stretch that out into next season. So then season two came along. First episode of season two, I will say, I thought was well done. I thought the first episode of season two to wrap up season one and to kind of get us in the uh in the direction that we were going to go for season two i thought it was fine and it showed a sort of change of direction um and promised a lot it promised a new direction it promised a new vibe it promised that we were going to finally see the titans as a team and then season two happened and well um I'm not going to go into all of my thoughts on season two here. Uh, Like I said, on Twitter, you can find it. It's a full thread of each and every episode. I live tweeted every single episode and they gave a rating at every episode, but it continued to drop the ball. Uh, Season two, I will say is better than season one, just in general, but they really, they brought in all of these new characters and then realized, Oh, Wait a second. We don't know how to handle the characters that we already have on the show. So bringing in these new characters means that we have to now sideline the characters that we had developed in season 1 to develop these characters, these new characters from season 2. And it just it made it for a show that had no direction and no momentum. Every time that the show would start to ramp up, we're putting a flashback or we're getting a side story or someone's showing up somewhere and it really made the show feel like it didn't know the actual order that it was going in and it's for me as someone especially when you're binging something like this and i recognize that it's like all of the dc universe originals um, they're released on a weekly format but even so from week to week i think it would be even worse because they would pop in an episode that's like wait a second what happened last week i don't remember and so when they finally come back to that plot point you've completely forgotten about what was happening so the balance is all off the characterization of certain characters was weird i have to give it up for jason todd though uh jason todd was consistently one of my favorite characters in season two uh along with hawk who again alan Hawk, so good and then my new favorite character that came into the show to the surprise I'm sure of no one was Connor Kent Superboy they teased him at the end of season uh at the end of season one and his episode is probably the best episode of the entire season uh because it's Just a pure Superboy episode. No other Titans show up. So they're able to focus on this character, focus on what makes him tick, and focus on him, on building him up and developing him to the point that he interacts with other people. And that episode alone shows that when they care, they can put something together that really, really works. And I think as, like, a solo pilot for a Superboy series, that could have worked. Um... But then the rest of the show is so committed to telling the story of Dick Grayson becoming Nightwing, which it should have already established in the first season that we're getting a lot of retread. There's a lot of repeated um, story beats and a lot of character regression because the characters who had gotten their development in the first season now wouldn't fit into the narrative of the second season that they were trying to build, so they decided to regress some of these characters like Starfire, like Beast Boy into characters that just felt like either A, they went through all this and didn't learn anything, or B, were completely different characters and by the end of the season, I was so fed up with the show that the i spoilers i guess i should have said that at the beginning Uh, (laughs) but we're a little late in it now but um that when they killed donna troy with no lead-up no um no fanfare no real true heroic sacrifice i laughed And I shouldn't have laughed. That's supposed to be a serious, like, moment. Donna Troy, one of the founding members of the Titans, dies. And I laughed. I had to pause the show because I was laughing so hard that I could not see the screen. And that just goes to show you, like, they didn't do the work to build up these characters to make you care when these things happened. And overall, it just felt like a failure when it comes to narrative and when it comes to character, and that's a real shame. So overall, and I th- and I put this at the end of um, that long live-tweeting thread, uh, Titans, I can honestly say, is the worst comic book show that I've ever watched. And I mean that because it didn't have a direct vision, it didn't have clear characters, and it just felt like it was a paint-by-numbers, made-my-committee show that was trying to be too many things at once, rather than really knowing what it was from the get-go. And so that's why it's at number five. At number four, just barely eking out Titans, is Swamp Thing. And I'm gonna tell you, the big reason that Swamp Thing beats out Titans on my list is that Swamp Thing knew what it was from the beginning. It was a supernatural swamp horror show and it leans into it immediately. There is no um, dilly-dallying. There is no um, trying to figure out what the show is. The show knows what it is right from the beginning and that's why it's such a shame that it basically was cut out cut off at the knees and not allowed to really finish its production and that's why honestly it rank so low i will say i really enjoyed swamp thing i really liked it i thought all the performances were spot on um the plot lines and the characters had a lot of intrigue and i thought that they were compelling as characters and as pieces of the narrative i liked Moray as a backdrop and as a setting i liked all of the actors that were in it And I honestly, you know, even some of the more silly stuff that you can kind of, I guess, wave away when it comes to putting together stuff like that, um, I really, I didn't mind. I didn't mind the ridiculous of certain episodes. They brought in Blue Devil of all characters. Like, it's, it really was a great show and I enjoyed it a lot. I... Still think that it's some of the best horror storytelling that um, DC live action has done, and since we haven't really gotten a true blue uh, superhero horror film from any of the big two. I think that it was a really good step in the right direction. The fact that it was kind of showrun by James Wan, who is really good at horror storytelling, was needed. And it was a huge benefit to the show. Um, it's, from, from what I understand, uh, the reason that it was kind of, the production was canceled was because of budgetary reasons. They were going over budget and stuff. But it, I honestly think that it showed how good the show was in the fact that the budget was going over. Because the show, the set design is fantastic. The effects that they use are great. Even some of the more ridiculous, like, Swamp CGI is really well utilized. And overall, I really think that the story they were trying to tell with Swamp Thing, starting him off as Alec Holland and really watching that character develop over the course of this show really accentuated the kind of, I guess, main story of Abby Arcane trying to figure out what was going on in Marais. Um, If you're interested in my full thoughts on the show from episode to episode, that was one of our first, uh, one of our first weekly reviews that we did last year where I went week to week listening to or basically recording my thoughts on each episode. So go back in the archives, find those episodes, and you can listen to my full uncut thoughts on Swamp Thing. So I really enjoyed it. Um, It was I think prematurely uh, ended and that's unfortunately why it ranks so low on the list. Now moving on to number three. Number three uh, switched up a couple times for me and at the end of the day I had to put this at number three because I love the, um, the source material I love the characters and I love that fan support brought this show back and I just love the team. But at the end of the day, the third season of young justice, I don't think reaches the heights of the first season, maybe the second season. Um, and so that's why it's a little bit lower on the list, but number three is young justice outsiders. Um, Just the idea that uh, Young Justice was brought back from overwhelming fan support, uh, petitions, campaigns to bring it back, I think is a wonder. And it's a revelation when it comes to how fan support can bring shows back from the brink. We've seen this with Clone Wars, another animated show that had a huge following. And its fan support brought the show back for its uh, seventh and final season. This show was brought back kind of in the same way in that it would be debuting its newest season on a streaming service rather than being on like Cartoon Network or something like that. And I was a diehard fan of Young Justice in Season 1 and Season 2. Even though Season 2 is better binged than it is um, watched week to week, I still think that Season 1 and Season 2 of Young Justice are some of the best animated storytelling that they've done at DC Comics. And this comes from a studio that really runs the game in uh, animated properties. And I think Young Justice was one of the best... uh, best pieces of animated comic book storytelling that we've ever gotten and so when the announcement came through that we would be getting a third season I was stoked I was over the mood about it and when the show started uh, talking about like hey this is what it's going to kind of be about we're looking at uh, metahuman trafficking the big focus is going to be on the outsiders we're going to see how we're really going to be bringing in uh, real world topics into this uh, animated show a lot of people were a bit put off by that because we're still i think for a large um, amount of the comics community we're still in that realm of don't bring politics or real world stuff into my comics leave them alone And while I don't subscribe to that mindset, I can absolutely see the uh, perspective from those who are. And this season was very divisive for that reason. They brought in more female protagonists, which I think was always really a strength of Young Justice, but... They also started to bring in real-world problems. Uh, they started to bring in the idea of social media used as both a hindrance and a help in the in the concept of the superhero community. They brought in human trafficking, turning it into metahuman trafficking. And that's a really touchy subject for a lot of people. They brought in politics, not just you know foreign politics and politics on a government scale, but also politics in a superhero community. And... I think it, that makes season three of Young Justice, titled Young Justice Outsiders, one of the most complicated uh, superhero properties that we've seen. Uh, I waited until the entire third season was wrapped up to catch up on it. And I, once again, just like season two, I think it's better binged. But the story that they tell, the new characters that they bring in is doing right what Titan season two did wrong in that they still kept the characters that worked from the first two seasons and gave them meaningful uh, plot lines, meaningful stories, meaningful uh, character development, but also brought in new characters like Geoforce, like, um, like Terra, like Halo, all of these characters that they brought in and really gave us time to, uh, get in on them really gave us time to figure out who they were while they were figuring out who they were. This idea that uh, metahumans are being forcibly given powers and then used to accomplish political goals is a really complicated subject because it's eerily, you know, close to stuff that happens in today and it's complicated. So For that reason, I think sometimes the show gets a little lost in trying to make that social meta-commentary. No pun intended on the meta thing. But it's still Young Justice at the heart of it, and that's why it ranks higher than the other two shows uh, before it. But it's not the best that Young Justice can be, and I'm hoping that with season four on the horizon, which they have announced there is a season four coming... Um, we're going to see sort of the narrative heights that the first season reached once again. So that's why it sits at number three. At number two, we have a show that I will say, at least for me, I didn't have a whole lot of hype for when it was first announced. I think it was a show that a lot of people didn't have really high expectations for, but it's a show that week after week knocked it out of the park and really surprised a lot of people, including me, while watching it. And it's the focus of our newest weekly review starting next week. And that is Harley Quinn, the animated series. Harley Quinn is a triumph in every single way. It is a fantastic show. And it's a show that, like I said, not a lot of people had high hopes for. Because it wasn't bringing back any of the, uh, I would say, more um, common or established uh, tropes that we normally... uh, associate with Harley Quinn. They were even bringing in a new voice actress uh, to play Harley rather than going back to Tara Strong, Arlene Sorkin. And I think for me, I was unsure exactly what the show was supposed to be all, all the way up until the first episode came out and I was blown away because this show really is, um, a surprise. The show surprised me in every single way that it stood out for its animation, for the characters that it used. It uses Dr. Psycho, for God's sake. And really the uh, perspective, because a lot of times when we come into Gotham City, we are coming at it from the perspective of the heroes. Batman, Robin, Nightwing, Batgirl, etc., etc. And this show brings to it a new perspective because you are exclusively looking at it through the perspective of Harley Quinn and the villains of Gotham City. So you get to see how they view Batman. You get to see how they view Commissioner Gordon. The Commissioner Gordon in this is so amazing because unlike, you know, our common uh, understanding of Jim Gordon, our common um, established idea of Jim Gordon, where he's, you know, super heroic and makes sacrifices and he's willing to stand... uh, toe-to-toe with the villains in the face of corruption and the GCPD. This Jim Gordon is overworked. He's exhausted. He's constantly, like... Drinking coffee and smoking a cigarette and, like, shaking from how just exhausted he is. His eyes are always bloodshot. He gets a little bit too into the weeds when he's talking to to any of the villains. He is desperately clinging to a friendship with Batman. And it's so funny because you're getting all these new perspectives on characters that otherwise would be and could be played very straight. Uh, poison Ivy is one of my favorite characters in the show. They turned poison Ivy essentially into Daria. And I think that's one of the greatest character shifts that I've ever seen making her a complete introvert. Who's really only is friends with plants and Harley and watching. There were so many times over the course of the show where uh, poison Ivy would say something and I would just go, Oh, that's a mood. That's like, I, I absolutely relate to that. Um, Because I am an extroverted introvert, and I like to do things, but I also don't like people a lot of times, (laughs) and so um, getting that perspective is fun. Um, The League, or the Legion of Doom, gets a big spotlight here because it's kind of the uh, overarching semi-villains of the show, along with the Joker, which we are absolutely going to get to. Um, And it kind of, it provides, like, a, um, what's it called? An ideal for Harley to strive towards. And we get all of these different versions of characters that we've seen before. Like, Lex Luthor is probably the one that's played, like, the most straight. Like, the most, like, this is Lex Luthor in literally every story that we've seen. But characters like Scarecrow, who for some reason is giving a given a British accent that I didn't realize worked but absolutely does. Um, and Bait. Bane is the best Legion of Doom character in the entire roster. Because they took Bane from the comics smashed him together with the tom hardy version of bane and also made him this lovable um, psychopath that no one really respects and it's like it's it's so good it's so fun because he's always got some he's always got something to say kind of in the background that no one really listens to and it's just he his scenes are some of my favorites now when it comes to um the actual heroes. We already talked about Jim Gordon, but Batman, who is played once again by Diedrich Bader, reprising his role from uh Batman Brave and the Bold, is once again pitch perfect as Batman. He's so good as the more deadpan version of Batman, who really is trying to uh hold the city together while it's essentially in chaos. We also get a look at Robin, who is unequivocally the Damian Wayne version of Robin. And there's a moment it's so funny. Um there's a because there's an entire episode devoted to Robin trying to make Harley Quinn his nemesis. And there's a moment where Batman is trying to make it up to Damien. And he comes in and he's like, You know, I I brought you a sandwich, I even cut all the corner or all the crust off of it. And Damien, without looking up, is just like, You didn't make that. You ordered Alfred to make that, or you didn't make that. Alfred made that. And Batman just kind of sadly, like, looks down at the sandwich. He's like, I told Alfred to make it. And it's just, it's so funny. The scene goes on to actually like talk about like their nemesis. And Batman's like, you really want your nemesis to be special. Like it's its talking about, you know, your first time. And um, Robin is just, you know, he's so intent on trying to get his first big nemesis. And Batman's like, you really, you want to have your first nemesis as someone that you can see the rest of your life battling. And it's just, it's so uh, tongue-in-cheek a lot of the times that you kind of forgive the fact that it's, I guess, technically supposed to be um, for kids since it's animated, but it is absolutely an adult show. Um, there are multiple moments where things happen where you would absolutely not see in a kid's show. There's, uh, there's a lot of swearing, a lot of uh, unmitigated violence and when we get to the villains, when we get to, uh, Harley's crew, especially, you get to see a lot of that, uh, Dr. Psycho is a prime example of just this woman-hating, um, just piece-of-shit kind of guy, but there's something, you know, um, endearing about him that makes him really fun to watch. Uh, we also have Clayface, who is my favorite version of Clayface that I've ever seen, because he is a thespian, through and through he talks you know he talks like um he talks like this and he's very theatrical at all times and he's a method actor because basil carlo was an actor and it shows like him go through like whenever he um Whenever he transforms into someone, it's always his voice, but he's doing an impression. Uh, there's an excellent episode with Maxi Zeus, who is just another just garbage person, but it's a fantastic episode where he, um, where they're trying to break into Maxi Zeus's mansion, and Clayface is basically like, I'll distract. They they basically tell Clayface, you distract him like with a delivery, and we're just gonna sneak in. And so Clayface goes up, knocks on the door, um, and then. Over the course, and I can't remember the exact dialogue, but over the course of this like s- short conversation with Maxi Zeus, um, basically goes from just a regular delivery man to, I'm your long lost son! And it's just so fun to see him like get so into each character that he plays when he transforms into them. I just, I die every single time. Uh, King Shark is also a character here who is so good because he's essentially he's a loser and that's what's great about all of these characters is that just like um kind of the original intent for the Guardians of the Galaxy Harley's crew is made up entirely of complete losers and it's so fun because um King Shark is kind of a dweeb he's kind of a a tech guy who really is used for his technical expertise and really only gets Uh, physical when he smells blood or when other people are put in danger. And I really, really dig that. Um, Going into their opposition, Joker, played by Alan Tudyk, is just so good in this role. We really get a big focus on how abusive that relationship is as well, which I really, I can't stress enough is so important to the portrayal of those two characters because when I hear people misguided, Naive people saying that, oh, I want a relationship like Harley Quinn and the Joker, and they romanticize their relationship. I have to just, I have to restrain every single bone of my body not to slap them upside the head because that relationship is so toxic and so abusive and so Stockholmy y that it just, it's not a good relationship. It is not a positive relationship. And... The fact that they choose to have Harley Quinn come to this realization over the course of the show is really, really well done, and it proves a great, um, it proves to be a great narrative and a great development arc for her over the course of this show to realize, like, holy shit, he was treating me awfully this entire time, and I just romanticized everything that happened. Uh, the first episode is huge on this, where it takes. A specific event from both batman's perspective and harley quinn's perspective and they see it very differently and harley quinn slowly has to come to terms with the idea that her perspective on the event is clouded by her love for joker and it's really well done and setting him up as this kind of boogeyman essentially for her um is just a great use of that character and kaylee cuoco I have to give her props for making Harley Quinn her own. In the same way that um, that Arlene Sorkin, when she originated the role, made it her own. In the same way that Margot Robbie made Harley Quinn her own. Kelly Cuoco really makes this version of Harley Quinn her own. And I think it's fantastic. Uh, she goes through all of the stages of a bad breakup. Of trying to find yourself. Of, you know striving for, almost reaching, reaching your goal, and then having it kind of pulled out from under you. She's a compelling lead, and she really pulls this whole thing together. So it's fantastic. It's a great watch. You can watch the entire first season now on the DC Universe app. Um, and they just, they did a great job. And I'm really excited to start season two next week. And I am chomping at the bit to talk to you all about it. However... It was just shy away from the top spot for me personally. And that top spot has to go to another underdog, another show that not a lot of people had high hopes for, but every single week blew it out of the water, hit home runs, and that is, of course, Doom Patrol. I have a passionate love for this show. And it stems from the idea that I was not a huge Doom Patrol mark for most of my life. Uh, Right before the uh, first episode debuted, we actually did an episode on the history of the Doom Patrol. Uh, Check that back out in the archives. You can find it. It is one of, I think, one of the first episodes that I was really like, I'm really interested, but I don't know a whole lot about this. So doing my research for it, I was blown away. And this show, with its cast, its storytelling, the arcs that it went through, was so well done that I just, I, it, it couldn't, it was the easiest choice to put this at number one. Um, Harley Quinn got close, but it will be number two for me um, probably all, all the way through until the end of time. Because Doom Patrol is a story about, um, about belonging. Doom Patrol is a story about trauma. Doom Patrol is a story about uh, feeling outcast. It's taking all of the best bits of the previous four entries on this list and putting it together in a kooky, weird, super adult-style story. This show really is the best thing that DC Universe put out, and there's a reason that its second season is also going to be debuting on uh, HBO Max. Because this show... Is just a triumph in every way. The Duke Patrol uh centers around Cliff Steele, aka Robot Man, Jane, aka Crazy Jane, Rita Farr, aka Elastic, Larry Trainer, aka Negative Man, and Victor Stone, aka Cyborg. All brought together by uh, Niles Calder, played by Timothy Dalton, I might add. Um, to become the Doom Patrol. and They face off against Alan Tudyk once again on this list as Mr. Nobody. And I think for me the announcement that Cyborg was going to be on this team was the thing that caught my attention immediately. Because typically Beast Boy is kind of that younger member on the team. And even though Beast Boy was already in Titans, they had kind of established over the course of that show as well as over the course of this show that these two shows kind of take place on different earths and that was ultimately uh kind of concretely revealed in crisis on infinite earths wonderful by the way and this show really could not be more different from titans because where titans didn't have a clear direction And you could tell it was trying to be too many things at once. Doom Patrol is a show that knows that all of its characters are super fucking weird. They just know. They know how weird the show is. They know how weird the characters are. They know how weird the story is. And they lean into it. And it's so fun to see. Each of these characters is super compelling. Uh, Diane Guerrero plays Jane. This girl with 64 different personalities. Each personality has its own superpower. And her arc through the show is finding uh, strength not just in herself but in being able to trust other people and her relationship with cliff who plays who is uh played by brendan frazier hadn't seen brendan frazier in forever um is so heartwarming because the two of them are missing something that the other uh kind of fulfills crazy jane had an incredibly abusive i'm i'm Calling her crazy Jane. Uh, but Jane had an incredibly abusive relationship with her father and really never, um, never learned to cope with it. And that's where all of these alternate personalities, uh, stem from. While Cliff, Cliff Steele, really was kind of a garbage person and lost both his, um, his wife, who they hated each other, but more importantly his daughter because he was supposedly killed during an auto accident and his daughter grew up with his best friend. And so the two of them are each looking for, looking to fill the hole in their life. And there's a part of them that knows that the two of them fit so well together because of their shared trauma and because of their shared uh, life experiences. But the arc of the two of them finding uh solace and support through each other is really really heartwarming uh april balby plays rita farr also known as elastigirl she is so fun and i'm going to tell you why because she they played a lot with her character when it comes to her powers in the comics elastigirl is known for being able to essentially just grow giant and that's really what her power set was in the comics here they make her a lot more similar to clayface and I think that was an awesome change, because Rita Farr was an actress in, I believe, the 50s or 60s. And she uh, had her accident, just like everyone else did, and she was given these powers where she is essentially able to... Essentially, her real form now is just this um, this mass of like flesh, and it's disgusting... Um, but she is able to reconstitute herself into her form, into other forms, and it's really cool because she has to learn about stepping into a role that she was never prepared for, and that's one of support. She's essentially has to become the mother, uh, the motherhood role in this, where she was never really, um... She's very vain. She was never really out for anyone but herself, and seeing her grow throughout the show, learning to care about others and to put others before herself, is really, really cool. The biggest, I would say, arc, uh, for me at least, the one that I was, um, the one that I was most captivated by, was uh, Larry Trainer. He's played by Matt Bomer, one of I think the. Probably one of the prettiest actors, uh, working today, who is primarily unseen. His face is primarily unseen because it's constantly wrapped in bandages. Uh, Larry Trainer was a pilot, a former uh, United States Air Force pilot, who uh, came into contact with this uh, negative spirit, and now it it basically melted him. Essentially, like you take the bandages off his head, and he looks worse than Deadpool. And he has to struggle with this idea of identity because when he was a pilot back in, I think it was the mid to late sixties, um, he was a closeted gay man who had a wife and kids at home. And this accident kind of threw everything out because his best friend, who was also his lover, um was the only one who really was there to support him after this accident and yet because of Larry's conflicted uh, sense of identity he pushed him away and it's watching him go from not wanting to be anywhere in the world with anyone wanting to be just shut in from everything, watching him slowly come to terms with finding out who he is, who he can be, and how he can bring a positive change to his world, which is, I think, more important than the greater world, uh, is just so fascinating. And his episode, specifically there is an episode that focuses on Danny the Street, which is a character who is a literal street it's weird, I know it is, but it's one of the best episodes because this episode is a very um, Larry-heavy episode, and there's a scene that I still, I think it's one of the best scenes in the entire show where he is in this club inside of uh, Danny the Street, and there's this moment where he uh, he feels, I don't want to spoil it because I want you to watch this show, um, where he feels for just a second like he used to before his accident and there's this just amazing moment where he is free and he's happy and then it cuts back and you find out that he is still struggling with this idea of identity and it's it's fascinating he's super compelling as a protagonist and what i love about this show that again um shows like Titans didn't do was that it gives you time with each and every character, not just to establish them, but also to establish their relationships with other characters. I think that the mystery behind Miles Niles Calder is amazing. They also bring in one of my favorite underrated comics characters, that being the amazing and super underplayed Flex Mentallo. He's one of my favorite characters who doesn't get enough love. And this kind of all culminates with a showdown with Mr. Nobody, who is essentially omnipotent and uh, he, or omnipotent, for those of you who want to get technical about my um, enunciation. And he's fantastic because he is fourth wall breaking more so I think than than uh, even Deadpool is because he recognizes like, you know, we're in a show, I do narration for the show. Like the villain is narrating the show and it's so meta, it's so fun and he as a character has so much fun. You can tell Alan Tudyk is having the time of his life and that is contrasted with uh, Joyvon Wade as vixstone cyborg who is so confident in his idea at this point like uh cyborg is already like an established hero uh he's met the justice league who do exist on this world somehow and he has to kind of come to terms with the fact that he may not have all of the uh, he, This idea of himself may not be actually true to what he is. So just like everyone else who's kind of struggling with their identity, both in the world and with each other, uh, they take a character who is easily played very one note. Uh, You can very easily play a character like Cyborg as just, like, the heroic guy who is just kind of a jock asshole and really give him depth and really give him an arc as well. The show overall is just a treat. Every single episode I absolutely love. It was one of, if not, I believe it was the first uh, weekly review that we did for this show, for this podcast, and... Every single week, I fell more and more in love with the show, with these characters, and it's just, it's the right way of taking a weird concept and weird continuity and rolling it into a package that is even weirder, but also is full of heart, full of care, full of love, and really is one of the best comic book shows ever, period, bar none. And that is why it takes the number one spot for me so that is my uh definitive ranking as of this recording for the dc universe originals at number five we have titans number four is swamp thing number three is young justice outsiders number two is harley quinn the animated series and number one doom patrol um i think there's value in all of these shows in some form or another um If you are new to the DC Universe streaming service, I would absolutely implore you to watch all of them. Um, Maybe in descending order from Doom Patrol down uh, as of this uh, ranking, because I think all of them really bring something different to the table. And even though some of them do it really uh, stick the landing better than others, I think with this kind of slate and with this... um, catalog of dc universe originals there's i think a good reason for the dc universe streaming service to continue on we are getting um new seasons for all of the shows that are on this list with the exception of swamp thing and i'm interested in all of them even titans i have no interest in watching either of these two seasons ever again the rewatchability of harley quinn the rewatchability of doom patrol really uh puts them above the others. But I am interested in seeing where each of these shows go with their next season. Which brings us to the weekly review. Uh, next week, we are going to be doing the first episode of season two of Harley Quinn. Could I can't tell you how excited I am. But before we get there, we have one final wild card weekly review. And that will be on... No lie, that theme music gets me so hyped. Uh, It is now time for the final Wildcard Weekly Review before we head into Harley Quinn Season 2 next week. And this week, we are reviewing something pretty special. And it's something that I have been um, told for years At this point that I've needed to watch, that I've needed to put time to sit down and view, and that is My Hero Academia. Specifically in this review, we're going to be covering the first two seasons, and I'm stoked. I was so surprised by this show because I have had people uh, in my life tell me for years, for years, years that I need to watch this show and with the basically with the uh, quarantine that we've been under for this time I finally got the time to watch this show and holy shit is it good man I was so surprised and I am so happy that I was finally able to get the time to watch this and let's talk about it basically the premise of this show okay is that the characters here live in a world where 80 percent of the population are born with superpowers it's very x-meny but in this world these people born with superpowers have to go to schools to uh basically to learn how to be superheroes and whether or not they stay superheroes, they become supervillains, whatever. Um, this show kind of centers around one of those schools, the premier school in Japan called UA high. And this whole concept of learning how to be a superhero, of learning how to uh, use your superpowers, which in this universe I'll call quirks are, is just, fantastic and the world is really kind of led by the premier superhero all might who is every single bit as inspiring and happy and um, heroic as superman essentially all might is this world superman and he is the symbol of peace and he is like i said the premier superhero and he inspires every single person in this world none more so than our lead character izuku Midoriya, also known as Deku. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to be upfront here. When it comes to anime, I've been a fan of anime since I was a kid. Different manga, different anime, all over the place. And I don't know if anyone else feels the same, agrees with me or whatever, but I have had um, multiple times where I'm watching a show... And I really want to. um, I'll. I really want to like the main character, but I love some of the supporting characters more than I like the main character. This has happened in shows like Naruto. When I have watched Naruto, I was like, yeah, let's fucking do it. Let's, uh, let's read this. And immediately I'm drawn to Sasuke. I don't know why. I don't know what happened. But, uh, Naruto was never really a character that I was super compelled by. Um... And this happened with other uh, with other manga, other anime as well. But this is probably the first time in a long while that I have watched an anime and the lead character is the one I'm most invested in. Um, Deku is just an incredible character. Deku is someone who is as much of a fanboy of superheroes and um, the battle versus good and evil as I am and maybe that's why I'm so drawn to him because as much he's as much of a fanboy as I am when it comes to this stuff but he is a character who just like 20% of the world was not born with a quirk however he worships all might and he has this idea in his head that even without a quirk he could still find a way to be a superhero and This basically uh, lights a fire under him for most of his life, up until the point that he actually meets All Might, who, after a little bit of um, back and forth between the two of them, agrees to give Izuku his quirk, which, as we come to find out, is called One For All. And it's uh, it's a quirk, it's a power that is passed down basically through generations, more or less, but it's passed down from hero to hero, and All Might has now chosen Deku to take on this power to become the new symbol of peace in the world. And we get to follow Deku kind of uh, applying to UA, going through the initial uh, entrance exams, all the way through, at least his, from the first two seasons, his first year at the show, or uh, at the school, and the first season is really about him trying to overcome this, uh, this self-doubt and this really this inferiority complex that he's kind of always had. And even though, yes, he gets a little emotional, yes, he gets a little um, whiny, he is just as inspiring as All Might is to his classmates uh, just in different ways. Because where All Might is inspiring because he is super powerful and he's able to um inspire people by the incredible feats that he can uh achieve deku is inspiring because he doesn't have that using uh all might's power injures his body and so he has to overcome all of these obstacles to get just to where his other classmates are and that's what's so inspiring about him it's um it's similar i would say in it has the same kind of um What's it called? It has the same kind of uh, themes, I would say, as like something like Into the Spider-Verse, where it's like anyone can be a hero. Um, and I really like that. Uh, a f- friend of mine who has also been one of the loudest voices uh, trying to get me to watch this, shout out to Kanan, um, kind of gave me this pitch to really get me into watching it, where he was like, you know, he and he... Knew what he was doing when he asked this question. He asked a leading question that was, uh, how much do you love Superman? And I was taken aback by this question because I had never kind of really equated the two. But after kind of explaining to him, like, fucking, I love Superman. Like, it's very well documented how much I love Superman. Um... And he said, the way that you love Superman is how much the main character and the rest of the world loves All Might. And immediately I was intrigued. And then uh, speaking to another uh, good brother of mine who is watching the show alongside me at the same time, uh, shout out to Andrew. uh, He said that it's very, um, it's almost like Superman is training uh, Billy Batson, Shazam. And I really like that concept, and that's kind of what uh, I w- I would say. If you have never watched like an anime before, but you're super into superheroes, kind of come into it with that mindset, and I think it really does um, it really does kind of enhance the story. Uh, but what I what really after being drawn in by the premise, by the characters, what really keeps me going through this show is the idea that it's a school. Um, It's Hogwarts meets superheroes, where every single character has a different quirk. Um, There are different classes. I believe the school is only uh, for three years. And so the characters are in the first year for these first two seasons and you get to watch as they learn more about their quirk, as they get to, you know, choose a superhero name, come up with, you know, different abilities and train and, you know, go up against each other. It's really, really cool watching these characters grow. And that's what I loved about the Harry Potter books was watching these characters come together, learn about each other, um, how they fit into the world, how their quirks work together and also work uh, in contrast to each other. And it's so fun watching these characters grow and become these new versions of themselves as we all do when we're going through high school. Uh, What's also really cool is that this touches on an idea that we don't see a whole lot when it comes to superhero media. And that's the kind of um, industrialization and, uh, I don't know how to describe it, the uh, capitalist uh, monopoly of superheroes. Like, there are agencies of superheroes. Superheroes are paid. They are uh, government... um, They are, like, uh, government servants. So they... uh, Each superhero, like, belongs to an agency. Agencies scout heroes out of their schools. It's so, like... I'm sure it's been done before and I'm sure we've seen it done before. But for me, it's it's a fresh concept that we don't see a whole lot and I really enjoy it. I think it's a cool idea that these characters are not just learning how to be superheroes, but they're also competing with each other for the eyes of agencies. And in that, it kind of has a lot of parallels to, um, to the entertainment industry. Like I see all the time Uh, fellow actors and actresses who are in, you know, acting schools, who are in art schools, who are like, you know, I'm developing my quirk, I'm developing my talent, and I am trying to be on display for different agencies who will pick me up and, you know, we'll do work together. Um, And in that, I was able to uh, relate to it as well. It's a lot of different ideas that I can latch on to and really... um, take a lot of, um, uh, what's it called, value out of because I've been there. I've, I've been in that stage where you're like, you're learning about yourself. You're learning about your talent. You're taking classes. You're honing your craft. And you're putting yourself on display for agencies to pick you up so you can get work to make money through your talent. And it's so refreshing to see something like that. And it's, I mean, I will not sit here and be like you know actors are superheroes but like it's it's very similar in that um business sense and i really appreciate that and that really speaks to you know the world building that this show does you know it shows that you know while there are like straight up heroes like all might who are there exclusively to provide um hope for people, inspiration. There are also superheroes who are just kind of there for a paycheck. And once again, as someone who um, is in the industry of arts and entertainment, you see that all the time. People who are mildly talented, but they are really just there to get a paycheck. And it's so refreshing seeing that uh, juxtaposition in that there are people who do it for the craft and people who are there for a paycheck. And you get to see that when it comes to, like, agencies, like how scouting works. Um, They have this whole the end of the first season is really about this big, you know, sports festival where everybody is, or maybe it's season two, I think it's season two, that's the sports festival, Um, where it's everybody is kind of doing, you know, a showcase, and they are on display for these... um, uh for these scouts and these agencies to sponsor them and it's really cool watching that progression because season one is great because it shows the entrance exam you go in you learn about what the school is about you get to see um everybody kind of working together learning about each other's quirks you get a great look at the supporting cast as well the supporting cast is fantastic um characters like Ida one of my favorites um Ochako is really great and uh Todoroki and uh, Bakugo are standouts as well and you get to see those characters learn about their quirk learn about their quirk in relation to others in their classroom and then the first season wraps up on this villain attack where they attack a training exercise and you get to see kind of what the overarching villain of the series is going to be and then season two does the thing that I kind of expected with anime because every anime goes to this point at some point but it's where it really brought me in is it brought in a tournament arc and if you know anything about me you know i'm a sucker for a tournament and when they bring in the idea of the sports festival it's like all all of your you know classmates are going to be competing and then it's you know going to be this tournament where we crown a winner immediately keyed in um, so season two, I would say I like more than season one, but it's like just barely. And, it, and that in no way means that season one is bad because season one is really about world building, establishing the idea of heroes and villains. And season two is all about the, I would say the school aspect, which I think is really cool. Uh, the second season also deals with, um, I believe the final exam is the, uh, the it's kind of the end where all of our, you know, all of our heroes are going through their final exam for their first year and everybody's like, okay, we got to do this. And it's pitting all of the, uh, all of the, uh, classmates, all of their, all the students against all the heroes. And you get to see how that works on a, uh, combative level. The characters are fun. The world is great. Uh, the concepts that they bring in are really refreshing and aren't, I would say, often seen in um, in superhero storytelling, much less anime storytelling. And it's just a great ride. I'm going to be continuing. I'm currently starting to watch season three, and I am still loving it. And I think if you are even just a uh, casual fan of superheroes, of comic books, you will find value in this. Yes, it has all the anime tropes that you uh, come to know when it when it um, relates to this kind of storytelling, but it's so fun. They have such a great time with it and it's really worth your time. Uh, the first four seasons are on Hulu. That's how I've been watching it. So definitely go check that out if you have Hulu. And I just, ah, I could gush about this. I could do an entire episode on this. I really could. Um, and I'm so excited that I finally got to, I uh, finally got to, watch it, and now I get to review it. So uh, after years of my peers trying to tell me how good it is, um, I will give a quick apology to uh, John, to Dustin, to Kanan for not jumping on this sooner. But I thank you for the uh, recommendation, and I will continue to keep watching this. So uh, that's going to do it for our our Wildcard Weekly Reviews. Um, It's been fun coming up with a new thing to watch each week, but I'm really excited to dive into Harley Quinn season two next week. So, so tune into our weekly review next week for that. But for now, we're going to head into the, the debut of a new segment for this podcast, which is this week's comics callback. Welcome to a brand new segment that we're calling the Comics Callback. This is where instead of talking about comics that you should be picking up this week, I'm going to give you five comics that you should go back and read. Whether these are single issues, I'm kind of taking this uh, fast and loose. We're going to come up with it as we go. Um, This first segment is going to be... um, talking about the first issues of these arcs, but really talking about the arcs as a whole. So I'm going to be counting down five comics that I think you should go back and read in this time. With uh, no new comics really coming out at this point, um, it's a great time to go into back issues, checking out stuff on the DC Universe streaming service, on Comixology, um, ordering hard copies through... uh, if your local comic shop can do deliveries, that's great, or through Amazon. It's absolutely worth your time to check these out. Uh, before we get into that, I will do a quick uh, Explain Pig of the Week from last week, and it was for me. Uh, Batman, Curse the White Knight, number eight of eight, the conclusion of the story, uh, written and illustrated by Sean Gordon Murphy, a great send-off, I don't want to talk about it too much because I think you really should uh, go read the series, I would say it's just as good as the initial uh, White Knight book by uh, Murphy, but it's a fantastic book, the series has been so good and the finale is everything you expect it to be and leaves off just like the first series with a fantastic cliffhanger at the very end so i would definitely recommend it uh there is one book that i think you should check out this week and that is batman the adventures continue it's a digital exclusive uh, comic that is going to be set in the world of Batman the Animated Series and the New Batman Adventures. It's going to be written by Paul Dini and Alan Burnett, the original writers for Batman the Animated Series, with art by Ty Templeton, um, and it's going to be utilizing the designs from some of the new Batman the or Batman the Adventure Continues uh, toys that have come out, like Deathstroke, Asbat, Red Hood, uh, characters like that. So I would definitely pick that up. Because it is digital exclusive, and you should absolutely check those out. But uh, we are going to be jumping into the top five uh, books that I think you should check out this week when it comes to our Comics Callback. And this edition of the Comics Callback is going to be a new 52 edition. Because for a lot of people, I think most... um, There are a lot of comics readers that really kind of started reading comics around the time of the New 52 in 2011. And even though the New 52 was, let's say, polarizing, (laughs) um, I think this really was a time for some great stories as well. A hard reboot can, um, can hurt a lot of stories, and it did for the New 52. But out of the New 52, we also got some really great stories as well. And these five, I think, are the best of the best and the ones that I think you should definitely check out. So starting off with Aquaman, number one. Uh, This is the kickoff to Aquaman's first arc. This is written by Jeff Johns with art by Ivan Race. And it's a a great book. I know Aquaman is... um, a very, I used the word earlier, polarizing character nowadays. Uh, A lot of people like the Jason Momoa version. This is not that. This is the previous Aquaman that uh, toiled under DC Comics for years, being underestimated and undervalued. And this book was really the first time that I, as a comics reader, really started enjoying Aquaman as a character. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. The superstar creators from Blackest Night and Brightest Day reunite to take Aquaman to amazing new depths. Aquaman has renounced the throne of Atlantis, but the sea will not release Arthur Curry so easily. Now, from a forgotten corner of the ocean emerges the Trench. A broken race of creatures that should not exist, an unspeakable need driving them. The Trench will be the most talked-about new characters in the DC Universe. Spoiler alert, they were not. But um, if you did watch the Aquaman movie, you will know—you do know that the Trench were a large part of that. And that James Wan is actually currently developing a Trench spinoff for some reason. So I would definitely check this out. It's a fun book and really upped the status of Aquaman all the way into uh, Rebirth, where they started to kind of tweak him and make him closer to the Jason Momoa version. Next up we have Action Comics number one Written by Grant Morrison With art by Rags Morales Uh, This is a book that surprised me And it's a book that As a Superman fan I knew I was going to pick up But did not realize I was going to be as hyped for Um, I knew that Grant Morrison Knows how to write Superman Uh, He is the brains Behind uh, All-Star Superman But I was not prepared for the Superman that they were writing here because they were essentially writing from a blank slate. Uh, This was a Superman that we hadn't seen before. This was a Superman that really is um, still in his early days my personal favorite version of Superman. Um, And this was a story that really kicked off the new status quo for that Superman. So let's dive into the synopsis here. The one and only Grant Morrison returns to Superman. Joined by sensational artist Rags Morales to bring you the tales of the Man of Steel unlike any you've ever read. This exercise debut issue is the cornerstone of the entire DC Universe. So this book is set uh, five years in the past. And so at the start of the New 52 um it's basically the justice league has been formed they're all you know figuring things out but they're younger and all this stuff this took place this initial arc took place five years in the past in kind of a year one situation for superman uh this is one of my favorite uh superman costumes where it's just jeans t-shirt and a little bitty cape superman this did influence uh, my personal design of superman in the uh Superman Pitch It from episode 100. And it's just a great book because it really shows, it brings Superman back to that characterization that he had in the initial comics, where he was much more about uh, fighting crime and corporations and really being, you know, a warrior for, you know, social justice, and I really enjoyed it. I think it's a great book. It's a great starting place. As you go on with Superman uh, action comics, it really starts to change, and it ultimately gets to what I think is the height of the book, which is the Greg Pack, Aaron Cuter run. Uh, But this is where it all starts, and I think it's a great reimagining of Superman and his supporting cast. Next up, we have Wonder Woman number one from The New 52. This is written by Brian Azzarello with art by Cliff Chang. This book completely revitalized the Wonder Woman character. Um, I think it's pretty safe to say that by the time that uh, post-final crisis, all the way up up to Flashpoint, Um, Wonder Woman had really gotten through all of the stories that you could tell with the character. And this New 52 book revitalized that character and really gave a new dimension to her by inserting more Greek myth into her origin. This is where her becoming the daughter of Zeus was first put in. This is essentially, if you're a fan of God of War, this is God of War meets Wonder Woman. Uh, And this really is the book that started the train rolling into what we know to be Wonder Woman status quo today. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Gods walk among us. To them, our lives are playthings. Only one woman would dare to protect humanity from the wrath of such strange and powerful forces. But is she one of us or one of them? So, yeah, if you're a fan of. That kind of like hard-hitting story that dives deep into Greek mythology. I'm a huge fan of Greek mythology. Uh, This is definitely a book that you should read. And the entire New 52 Wonder Woman run is really a story of uh, peaks and valleys. But it starts off so strong here that it really kind of carries you through all the way through that New 52 run. Next up, we have Nightwing number one in the New 52 era, which is written by Kyle Higgins with art by Eddie Barrows. This was the book for me when the New 52 came out. This was the book that I clung to. This was the book that I just, I still hold very near and dear to my heart. And this was the book that I think for me, had the most riding on it. Because up to this point, uh, Dick Grayson had kind of fulfilled his legacy character directive of becoming Batman. And so the announcement that he would go back to Nightwing was met with a lot of frustration, I will admit that I was a, uh, a person who was very frustrated by this, and I didn't want him to go back to Nightwing because he had made such strides as Batman, but this was the book that really kind of turned it around for me and got me back into the idea of, you know what, he can be okay as Nightwing. He's not going to lose anything as a character by being Nightwing again. And so this book is so fun. Let's just go ahead and dive into it. Dick Grayson flies high once more as Nightwing in a new series from hot new writer Kyle Higgins, and he embraces his destiny, Haley's Circus. The Big Top, where Dick once performed, returns to Gotham City, bringing with it murder, mystery, and superhuman evil. Nightwing must confront his past among former friends and enemies from his circus days while uncovering a much greater evil. So Kyle Higgins is a great writer. Um, I was a huge fan of Batman Gates of Gotham, which he wrote as with uh, Dick Grayson as Batman. And so bringing him on to kind of helm the new 52 Nightwing was a great choice. Eddie Barrows is also a great artist, big fan of his. And this kind of dives into this idea that now you've been Batman, what happens next? what happens next? You go back to your roots. And so bringing back Haley Circus, showing the idea of, um, that Haley Circus might be a lot more complicated and might be a lot darker than we initially, uh, understood is a great, great, uh, storytelling device. And I am so glad that they decided to take this direction. Now this direction with Nightwing would kind of, um, grow into him city hopping, which I also liked. You know, the idea that Nightwing, as a uh, essentially as a gypsy, and as a circus kid gets itchy feet and the need to move around, I thought was really well done. And this Nightwing book would eventually lead into Grayson, which I also love. But this is a great starting point if you're a fan of Nightwing and you want to kind of follow along from his progress from here all the way up to where he is in Rebirth. This is a great starting point. And finally, the big book—the book that I think really won the New Fifty Two, to no surprise—is Batman Number no. One, written by Scott Snyder, art by Greg Capullo. This really kicked off the status quo for Batman in the twenty tens and beyond. People still call this the best modern Batman run of all time, um, and I—I I think it's—you know—you'd be hard pressed to disagree. Uh, They did a lot with this run. There are, I believe, a total of 52 issues in this total um, Batman run. And the saga that they tell over the course of those issues is fantastic. But this initial arc that kicks off with Batman number one is the seminal Court of Owls arc. This established... Uh, a brand new villain for Batman, which is super hard to do uh, nowadays. Pretty much any villains created past, let's say, 95 don't really stick around all that much, with very few exceptions. But this one really is one of those things that people now put up with, like, the Joker, Riddler, Penguin. Those characters who have been around for decades really have established themselves as, to quote, a... F- Another synopsis on this list, the most talked about new characters in the DC universe. Uh, the Court of Owls is a great, great uh, established uh, villain nowadays, but here when this story was kicking off, they were still brand new, there was a lot of mystery behind them, and the whole Court of Owls arc leading into the Night of Owls was some of the best And it arguably was the best that New 52 really got in this stage of development. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Be here for the start of a new era for the Dark Knight from writer Scott Snyder and artist Greg Capullo. A series of brutal killings hints at an ancient conspiracy and Batman learns that Gotham City is deadlier than he knew. So again, this starts off, you know, Batman kind of in the status quo of like, I'm Batman. I know everything about Gotham. And then steadily as the issues go on and as the story goes on, he starts to learn that, oh shit, I didn't know everything about Gotham. And that's really at the heart of every Batman book what it should be about taking Gotham making Gotham a character in its own right and really giving Batman new stories to tell so that's why I think it's honestly the best of the New 52 and this is why Batman number one from the New 52 era is the book you should be reading if you want to go back and read uh A book an arc a full uh, run from that era so to recap we've got aquaman number one action comics number one wonder woman number one nightwing number one and batman number one these five for me are the best of the uh, new 52 era next week we'll be taking a look at another uh another group And I'm hoping that this will uh, kind of give readers, you know, some material to go back. If you haven't caught all of these issues, you can go back and read them. They're all available on the DC Universe app. Uh, They are not a sponsor of this podcast, but they could totally be a sponsor of this podcast. And I think it's absolutely worth your time to go back and read this, especially now that we're not getting new comics for a little while. So... These are the books that I think you should definitely check out. These are the books that I think uh, represent the best and the height of the new 52. And these are the books that absolutely deserve a comics callback. And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up, the final segment of this episode. And that's also going to bring us to the Geeksplain mailbag. We've got two pieces of Geeksplain mailbag for this week. First off, from Dante Barber on Instagram. Uh, I kind of put out the call last week to ask uh, the Geeksplain listeners how they... Uh, would rank their top five books that you should be reading in 2020. Feel free to send me your top five books, and I will absolutely read them on the air here. Uh, Dante Barber sent me over his top five, and they include um, Moonshine from Image, Gideon Falls, also from Image, God Killers from Aftershock, Black Hammer, I've heard a lot of good things about Black Hammer, and I definitely want to check that out, from Dark Horse, and in number one, Dead Planet, deceased from dc thank you for sending that in and he also sent in uh two questions so i'm going to read them here so he says dante says i have two questions for you and the rest of the geeksplain listeners how do you think that superman will be beaten in the uh, dead planet series he's practically unbeatable since he absorbed the sun and the other is, do you think the upcoming DC animated movie Justice League Dark 2, which is uh, Justice League Dark Apocalypse War, will be able to possibly be better than the MCU Infinity Wars movies? So I'm going to tackle each question one at a time. First question, um, it's going to be tough. Uh, Superman, at the end of uh, the initial deceased book, also became a an anti-life zombie and more or less absorbed the sun. It's, um, yeah, that's going to be tough. Uh, They are sending over, as far as we know, uh, John Kent, who is possibly even more powerful than Superman. He's been uh, touted in the Legion of Superheroes' most recent book as the one and true Superman. So we've yet to see how his half-Kryptonian, half-human biology is going to... How that's going to affect his power, how that's going to affect how he stacks up against Clark. But I think really, um, besides John Kent, Damian Wayne is going to be their trump card. Because Damian Wayne does not have the same um, relationship and reverence for Superman that Bruce Wayne did. So if anyone is well-equipped enough to take on Superman, because regardless of whether he has the anti-life equation within him, he's still... He still has his normal weaknesses, and Damian Wayne is n- is not above using those weaknesses to his advantage. So I would look out for those two characters going up against him for sure when uh, DC's Dead Planet does come up. And to tell you your second question, Justice League Dark Apocalypse War, I am going to say honestly no. Um, I do not think it will be uh, better than the Infinity Wars movies. I'm just going to say just based on Infinity War alone. Um, they've said, and uh, DC has kind of let out, that the Apocalypse War movie will be kind of the culmination of their current, like, New 52 DC animated movies line, where all of them were in a shared universe. And then once that once that movie goes, it's going to be a free-for-all, and movies going forward will have their own continuities, which I think is better. Um, I think just based on the fact that I am no more... Uh, invested in the characters from the new 52 animated movies than I am from the Marvel movies, that I don't think it will be better. I like the ideas that we've seen in the trailers and the first looks, and I think it's going to be a good movie, but it will have to pull out all the stops and really surprise me to be better than even just Infinity War, much less both Infinity War and Endgame together. Our second piece of... Uh, Listener mail from the GeekSplain mailbag comes from Jessica Morgan on Twitter, where she asked me how I would recast the original six Avengers. So we're talking Tony, Steve, Natasha, Bruce, Thor, and Clint. And I put an extra little bit of, um, of, uh, what's it called, um, Restrictions on this in that I wanted to pick actors and actresses that could have been casted in these roles at the time that these characters and roles were casted at. So I have two picks for each one, so I'm just going to go down uh, the list for each character and... I'll go down, like, my first picks, and then I'll go down my backup picks. So starting off with Hawkeye, my first pick is Jensen Ackles. At the time that he was casted for, um, at the time that he would have been casted for Hawkeye, he had already been working his way through, uh, Supernatural, and Jensen Ackles is one of, I think, one of the most likable characters, and, On uh, Supernatural, he essentially plays a uh, Supernatural version of Hawkeye. So especially the Hawkeye from like the Matt Fraction run, stuff like that, which, granted, wouldn't be coming until years later, um, I think he would make a great choice. For Bruce Banner, might be an outside choice, but I picked Tom Hardy. Now I know a lot of people are going to be like, No, he's Eddie Brock, or no, he could be Wolverine, or no, he could be literally anybody else. I think bringing in Tom Hardy, especially at the time that they brought, at the time that Incredible Hulk came out. Because I'm putting him, I'm casting him at the time that Incredible Hulk, not Avengers. Um, Tom Hardy was still, you know, trying to really break out. And I think this role, as most people see him now, is this huge beefed up Tom Hardy. But a lot of people kind of forget that in Inception, he was more of a slimmed down Tom Hardy and we've seen him be more slimmed down as well and Tom Hardy is a darkness in him that I think would have played really well with Bruce Banner I think it would have been really cool to see him play that role so that is who I picked for my initial choice for Natasha Romanoff Black Widow I chose Emily Blunt Emily Blunt was the initial choice but had to pull out because of a another film commitment and I think Emily Blunt would have done a great job with this character she has the um the stunt action acumen to pull it off she's a badass and she would have been a great great pick for this character moving on to thor i chose joel edgerton i am a big fan of joel edgerton and this stems all the way back to warrior which if this casting had been put in place, would have reunited him with a Warrior castmate uh, Tom Hardy. Uh, Joel Edgerton is another Australian actor who um, has a certain physicality to him. If you watch Warrior, he, is, he can be very physical. He can get ripped. And he's also of comparable stature to Chris Hemsworth, which sounds crazy. But if you put them up next to each other, he absolutely is. Um, he also... I think would have played a really good cause at the time that he would have been cast, he would have been around thirty. Where which puts him I think two or three years older than um than Chris Hemsworth. But he could have played not just the Thor that was in that first movie but also really could have done some work with the uh with the thor that we see in like infinity war and endgame that kind of grizzled thor that's been through wars and really is a more god of war kratos version of thor so i think he would have really pulled it off well for tony stark i have um an actor who at the time was still looking also looking for his breakout role and I think really could have met it with Tony Stark, and that is Oscar Isaac. He was still kind of working his way through. He was still a couple years off from uh, the role that really caught my attention with him, which was as the club owner in Sucker Punch, and he was still far away from being Poe Dameron. But both with his stature as well as with his acting style. Um, I think Oscar Isaac could have been a really great Tony Stark and would have played a little bit better as the younger, brash Tony Stark, who's still in kind of that playboy space than I would say an older Robert Downey Jr. would have and did in the first Iron Man. And I think uh, Oscar Isaac really could have run the gamut when it comes to his emotions. He would have been a great pick. And for me... For Cap, for Steve Rogers, the pick I would have chosen was Chris Pine. Chris Pine, I think, is a lot of people's alternate casting choice. Um, just based off of the uh, the roles he has played, whether it's uh, Captain James Kirk, whether it's as uh, Steve Trevor, uh, this Chris Pine's um, comedic sensibilities, with his leading man star quality, really would have brought a different vibe to the character, and I could have easily seen him putting on the Stars and Stripes to play Cap. Now, for my alternate picks, starting off with Hawkeye, again uh, we have Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I think, really has the chops to play a superhero. And the fact that outside of sort of Robin in The Dark Knight Rises, we haven't really seen him in that. Uh, way because he seems like a much more grounded character he wouldn't really work as like a character with a lot of superpowers and i would have been interested in seeing how joseph gordon levitt would have approached a character like hawkeye next up for bruce banner i have joaquin phoenix joaquin phoenix was also uh, in talks to play dr strange at one point or another but i think he really could have just like tom hardy brought that um, darkness to the character while still being very reserved, and I think his physicality. While I think Tom Hardy's physicality would be better for the role, um, he really could have done some really good work in that Bruce Banner role, and also kind of getting into the mindset of the Hulk as well. For Natasha, for Black Widow, my alternate pick is Charlize Theron. Uh, she has just as much physical acumen as Emily Blunt does, and she would have brought that kind of air of sophistication that she always brings, Um, and kind of having her pair off with Bruce in the same way that they had in, you know, with um, uh, Scarlett Johansson and Mark Ruffalo, having her paired off with either Joaquin Phoenix or Tom Hardy would have been a really interesting uh, combination. Going to Thor, I have Charlie Hunnam. Now, at this point, he was just as much of an unknown as uh chris hemsworth was in fact he had already i be i believe had already been starting to really gain traction on the tv screens in uh sons of anarchy and his uh his physicality along with his just as general look would have worked really well with thor i think now for tony i have john ham john ham i will get into a comic book movie one day uh, but John Hamm could have been a really good Tony Stark. It would have been very different from the RDJ Tony Stark, and would have been very different from the Oscar Isaac Tony Stark as well. But John Hamm's sensibilities—he had already begun starting to—he had already begun his star-making role as um, as Don Draper in Mad Men. And if you need any kind of view or any kind of perspective on how to play a um, a really differing shades of gray, corrupt uh, businessman that Tony Stark is at all times, look at Don Draper. That is a key look into how he could have played Tony Stark, and I think he would have done a really good job. And my final alternate pick for uh, Captain America is John Krasinski. John Krasinski was in the role. He got as far... Uh, he got far enough to get into a costume screen test, and I think he could have brought those same sensibilities that um, that Chris Evans brought to the role. He probably would have been more comedic, which I think uh, could have worked if they wanted to go that direction with the character. But John Krasinski has shown in roles or in films like a Quiet Place in films like uh, 13 Hours that he could absolutely pull off the physicality needed for the role as well so I think he would have done a really great job on it so uh, thank you to both of our uh, listener mail this week really enjoyed uh, going through and I love answering questions like this so if you would like to send me any uh, listener mail you want to reach out to me ask me a question uh, feel free to do so on either of our social medias at Pod. that's at P O D on Twitter and Instagram or through email because I'm an old man I still read emails to geeksplained at gmail.com also feel free to reach out to me if you want to talk about anything we talked about this week whether it's what your personal rankings of the DC Universe originals are uh, whether you've read the uh, the books that I suggested during our comics callback and how you feel about the current state of comics what's your favorite comic that you're reading right now I want to hear all of this stuff Also, feel free to subscribe to us on the podcasting platform of your choice. Give us a five-star rating and review, especially on iTunes, and I will read them here on the air. I love getting feedback for this podcast, and ultimately, this podcast is a... Podcast for geeks by a geek. So I love getting feedback and it really helps us out giving us those ratings and reviews. We are currently a five star rated podcast on Apple Podcasts and I wear that uh, like a badge of pride. So, like I said, uh, feel free to give us those uh, ratings and reviews. I will read them here on the air and it really just helps us out, get us kind of into the orbit of listeners just like you so tune in next week I'm really excited about next week's episode episode 103 which is going to be covering my top five Final Fantasy games so really excited to talk about these Final Fantasy 7 remake does come out next week so look forward to that same geek time same geek channel but for now for Geek Splane, this is Eric Zana thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time